But so in conclusion, if you're addicted to philosophical cocktail, it's okay. Seek help. If you're addicted to philosophical cocktail, we're calling the police. <laughs> Listening to the Philosophical Cocktail Podcast. Hello and welcome to Philosophical Cocktail. I'm your host, Kayla Finn, and sitting across from me, as always, is my amazing co-host, Joshua Finn. How are you doing today, Josh? I am doing wonderful. How are you doing? I'm great. You know, I think I do have a problem, though, Josh. What's that? I use Snapchat too much. Oh, yeah? Social media got you addicted? A little bit. I'm a little addicted to social media. I I just like talking to people, you know? How many hours a day do you spend on your phone? Uh, We're not going to talk about that. Oh, no? Nope. Pretty sure it's like at least four hours minimum. And you don't even get to use your phone at work. Yep. So basically, I don't use my phone at work and then come home and binge. So if you're not at work or asleep, you're on your phone. Pretty much, yeah. Oh. That's why I think I have a problem. Sounds like you need help. I think I do. (laughs) So either way, today we're talking about addiction. Yeah, and this is a major problem, especially in America right now with the opioid epidemic. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. So I think to start, we should define what addiction actually is. Yeah, well, if you look on uh, Merriam-Webster, they have a really long definition for it, but it's basically a compulsive, chronic, physiological, or psychological need for a habit-forming substance, behavior, or activity having harmful physical, psychological, or social effects, and typically causing well-defined symptoms such as anxiety, irritability, tremors, or nausea upon withdrawal or abstinence. So to kind of summarize that a little bit, uh, it's basically compulsive substance use or any kind of habit that has harmful consequences on a person. Yeah, it's the need for something that has harmful effects. Basically. So does your use of Snapchat have harmful effects? Uh, it. I mean, it does a little bit, maybe on my relationship. I feel like I'm on my phone so much that I don't even talk to my husband. <laughs> AKA that's, you. <laughs> that's definitely true. It is. Um, so yeah. what, what causes people to become addicted? That's a really good question, Josh, because a lot of people think that there's like an addictive personality and it's actually not true. That's one of the most common myths about addiction is you, oh, like this person is more likely to be addicted because of their personality. That's not at all true. What's interesting is about the half of the risk for addiction is actually genetic. So your genes affect um, how much you need that like reward or reinforcement, like the the dopamine and stuff. So if half of it is based on genetics, wouldn't that mean there is an addictive personality, like you're born into it? Sure. But I mean, a lot of it also has to do with a lot of social, psychological and environmental factors as well. So even if you have that gene that could possibly make you a little bit more susceptible and you you grow up in an environment where it's not something that Uh, it doesn't cause you to be that addicted, you still wouldn't necessarily have an addiction. 
So it's it's more complicated than just saying someone's personality causes them to be addicted. Absolutely. It's it's a little bit of both nature and nurture at this point. Like most things. Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting, too, is a lot of the reason why people use these substances, um, they usually say that it's to help them socialize or connect with others. So a lot of people do it as like, oh, like I only drink socially. I drink with my friends. And it helps them to be relaxed. It gives people like positive and pleasurable experiences. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I doubt people would become addicted if it wasn't a really pleasurable feeling. Yeah. And the reason why a lot of this stuff is pleasurable is it actually ties into neurobiology, where it involves a lot of brain pathways of the reward and reinforcement system, which would include dopamine. Um, so when you do these things, whether that's being on social media or you know using a, a drug, it makes you happy, basically. Yeah, definitely. Like I was saying, if it didn't make you happy, you probably wouldn't become addicted. Very few people are addicted to being hit with a textbook. <laughs> That's very true. It's not exactly a pleasurable experience. Yeah. So obviously it does give you that pleasurable feeling in the beginning, especially. After a while though, people do start to have a sense of hopelessness and they feel like a failure or um, they start having feelings like shame and guilt. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with kind of the environment, especially in America. Mm -hmm. There's this idea that drug users are awful people. You know, they deserve what's coming to them. We've locked them up for decades now. Yeah. You know, massive amounts of people just for being addicted to something will go to prison. Absolutely. And so this actually really kicked off under President Richard Nixon, Mm -hmm. So he declared a war on drugs back in 1971. And so it's essentially prohibition. And we usually think of that in terms of alcohol, but it's just the government prevention of any kind of substance. Yeah. And the belief was that if you stigmatize these people and degraded them and locked them up, that it would actually reduce drug-related crime, addiction, overdose, things like that. I mean, clearly now we see that's not the case. Yep. It's almost like another sort of tribalism where they're trying to kick out the drug users out of the society, but then they find other people. So they're able to connect with people who also use drugs and it kind of pushes them to do it more. That is true. Usually it's very difficult to be the only drug user you know. Mm-hmm. And we'll get more into why that is. But so what's interesting, I actually didn't know this. The DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, was actually created in 1973. I didn't realize that was that recent of an addition to the government. Yeah, it's pretty much right after the war on drugs kind of started. Yeah, it was the merger of a lot of different offices, but it was meant to consolidate their efforts in order to control drug abuse. Yeah. And what really escalated it, so Nixon started it, but Reagan really expanded the drug war. Mm -hmm. You remember Nancy Reagan saying, just say no, that whole campaign yeah. to kind of get kids to say no to drugs. But even though that's a good message, I'm not saying tell your kids to do crack. <laughs> yeah. But the negative side of it was he focused a lot more on punishment instead of treatment. Mm. And so incarcerations for nonviolent drug offenses 
went from 50,000 in 1980 to 400,000 in 1997, an eightfold increase. That's insane. That's a lot of people that are getting incarcerated just for, you know, having a brain disease, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's just a massive tragedy mm-hmm. that all these people went to jail for the only crime of having their brain reward them for the act of taking a substance. Absolutely. You know, these aren't people killing each other. These are nonviolent offenses. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, too, I've seen a lot where um, some of the crimes that are even violent could be the person was under the influence or they were doing it in order to obtain money for their for drugs or whatever it is that they were looking for, too. So, yeah, naturally, I mean, there are a lot more problems with drugs than just the addiction side of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is an entire drug war going on in Mexico at the moment. True. But another thing that is an absolute tragedy that came out of all of this. Mm -hmm. So there were a couple racist policies enacted during this time period as well. And we like to think that the mid-1980s weren't that far away that we've advanced. Yeah. But what actually happened uh, during that time was Congress passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act in 1986. And that allocated $1.7 billion to the war on drugs. It also established mandatory minimum prison sentences for drug offenses. Mm-hmm. And the worst part of this is, so if you had five grams of crack, mm-hmm. right, you would get a five-year sentence. But it took 500 grams of cocaine to get the same sentence. And so 80% of crack users were African American, while cocaine is a predominantly white drug. So essentially, you'd need to have a oh, hundred wow. times the amount of the drug to get the same sentence. That's insane. So, I mean, it could have been not necessarily on purpose. It's pretty clearly on purpose. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's unfortunate. Because think about it. Why would you make, if you're going to make mandatory minimums, why would crack be a harsher sentence than cocaine? Especially by so much. It's not like five grams of crack versus 10 grams of cocaine. Yeah. It's a hundred times the amount to get the same sentence. So I do have a question. What's the exact difference between cocaine and crack? So cocaine is like the pure form of the drug and Mm -hmm. crack is, I think it's combined with water and baking soda usually and then boiled off till it's a solid. And crack actually comes from the crackling sound it makes when it's heated. Interesting. Thanks for explaining that for me. (laughs) I don't know much about drugs, clearly. <laughs> that's that's not a bad thing. I guess. You're right. But another calamity that we're facing at the moment is the opioid epidemic, mm-hmm. which is still going on. I think from 1999 to 2016, roughly 450,000 Americans died from opioids. Mm-hmm. So clearly, the war on drugs has been going on now for, what, almost 50 years Yeah, and I think the reason why uh, a lot of people like to use opioids is because they have chemicals within them that relax the body and relieve pain. They can also cause people to feel not only relaxed, but also give that that high feeling, the the pleasurable feeling. (laughs) Yeah, the pleasurable feeling that gets people addicted. (laughs) Yes, that. So if the war on drugs is an absolute failure that's been going on for 50 years and we have catastrophe after catastrophe what what solution is there has anyone been successful at this that's a that's an amazing question 
So I know I did hear something about Vietnam in the, the 70s. Yes, you're absolutely correct. That's exactly where I was going with that. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like we know what's going on. I can read your mind. Clearly. Or your notes. <laughs> so back in 1971, when the war on drugs was declared, we were also in Vietnam. That war was raging. Mm-hmm. And 51% of the armed forces were smoking marijuana, 31% used psychedelics, and 28% took hard drugs like cocaine and heroin. Mm -hmm. So marijuana was the first drug that came up, and everyone kind of turned a blind eye to it. You could buy a carton worth for $5. You know, it was really cheap there. Yeah. Okay, so originally there was an article for Washington Magazine published in January of 1968 about how common marijuana was among the troops. And this set off a media, like, firestorm. Yeah. Everyone was losing their minds. So the army began clamping down on the usage. I think, according to History.com, they were arresting a 1,000 soldiers per week for marijuana possession. Oh, wow. Now, one of the unintended consequences was... All the soldiers switched to heroin, which was much easier to hide. It doesn't have that telltale uh, weed smell. Yeah. And so since heroin was flowing into Vietnam, I think by 1973, 20% of soldiers in Vietnam were consistently using heroin. That's a lot. That's insane. So back home during that time, there was this idea that the country was going to be just swarmed with junkies coming back from the war. Mm-hmm. And so they thought, how are we going to deal with this? You know, we need programs in place to handle this amount of drug users. Because I think 35% tried heroin overseas and 20% were habitual users. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people. Yeah. But what's really interesting, when they came home, 95% just stopped. Yeah. Do you know why that is? I do, but I'm going to let you take it. I mean, if you think about it, when you're in the field fighting, kind of have nothing better to do. Yeah, I mean, it's extremely stressful. Everyone back home hates you. Yeah. The war was incredibly unpopular. And then you came home, you went back to your nine to five job, your wife, your kids, all that stuff. There was no time or reason to really do it anymore. Yeah, exactly. There was a study that actually explains this perfectly. So... Have you ever heard of the study where they injected rats with cocaine? Um, no. I, I mean, I might have. I don't quite remember anything about that. Okay, so the first um, experiment they did, it was a rat in a cage, and they had the rat administer cocaine themselves. How? I think it was in the water. Oh, They okay. had the option of drinking pure, unadulterated water or cocaine-laced water. Yeah. And overwhelmingly... They killed themselves with the cocaine. Interesting. They would just use it until they died, which really fits the narrative of what we think addiction is. Yeah. But somebody thought, hey, that's not exactly how society works. We're not put in cages alone. Mm-hmm. So what they decided to do, I think it was a Canadian researcher. They created something called the Rat Park. Mm-hmm. It was the exact same study. However, instead of being alone, they had toys, there were other rats, so they could socialize with other male and female rats. They had tunnels to play and hide. 
They had multiple levels, so it was pretty much an entire rat society. Yeah, sounds really fun, though. I'd love to be a part of that study. It it sounds super cute. I just love to see all the rats playing like that. But here's the kicker. Mm -hmm. None of them died. Did any of them use any of the cocaine-laced water? They did, but overwhelmingly, they went to the unadulterated water. Okay, so it's kind of almost like a once in a while they might have done it. Yeah, a couple used the lever for the drug water, but it wasn't none of them overdosed. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool actually. And so the the highlight here is what's the difference? Well, we're not in cages. A cage where you're alone is an extremely stressful environment. If you have nothing to do except take cocaine, what are you going to do? Take cocaine. Yeah, and that really reinforces the idea that addiction isn't, you don't have an addictive personality. It's a lot, uh, it has a lot to do with those environmental factors. I mean, those rats that were living in a community, they, they had all these things to do. They had other rat friends. They chose to do it maybe every once in a while, but it wasn't an, it wasn't habit forming. It wasn't an addiction. They didn't overdose. They, they continued to live and, and have fun and stuff like that. Yeah, they had better things to do than be high out of their mind all the time. <laughs> yes, they did. And so right now you might be asking yourself, self, has any country been bold enough to actually try this kind of attack on addiction? Have they mm-hmm. tried to make it more about environmental factors instead of a war on drugs? Yeah. There has. Yeah, I've actually heard of this. Portugal. Yep. So I believe it was back in 1998. Portugal was a nightmare Mm -hmm. when it came to drugs. I believe 1% of the entire population was addicted to heroin. Oh, wow. So if you put that in American perspective, what would that be? 3.3 million, 3.4 million? Yeah, that's that's a lot. Of just one drug. That's not all addicts. That's just heroin. Absolutely. And they had massive amounts of HIV infections because people were using, people were sharing needles. needles. And there were tons of overdoses, as you can imagine, if 1% of your population is addicted. Absolutely. So they originally took the American approach of, let's hammer these people down. You know, you're going to jail. We're we're removing you from our society. Mm -hmm. But that didn't work. So they tried something radical. They decriminalized all drugs. Yeah. And I think that that's an amazing thing to do because you have so many people that are overdosing because they're too afraid to go to hospitals. If you go to a hospital when you're on a drug, they're going to have to report you to the police. Yeah, that's why you see in different TV shows, movies, where they just push him out of the car in front of the hospital and then drive Mm -hmm. off. I think there have been some laws enacted where they're like, please come in. We will not report you. We need to know what's happening. Don't just dump someone in front of the ER. But yeah, overwhelmingly, we're much more critical of addicts. So now, 17 years on, the U.S. is facing the terrifying opioid epidemic. I think in 2016, 64,000 Americans died from opioid overdoses alone. Portugal has plummeted to five times lower than the European Union average when it comes to drug-induced deaths. Wow. And that's 150th of the United States. 150th, what's the 64,000? Of the overdoses. That's insane. Yeah. That's 2%. Oh my goodness. 
And so drug use overall has declined. HIV has declined. I think it declined by 25 times. I think originally it was a 104 new cases per million in 2000. And now it's 4.2 cases per million in 2015. 15 years. That's a hundred per million decrease. Yeah. And considering it started at 104, that is substantial. Yeah. And what's even better, they didn't just decriminalize it. They took the money that they paid hunting these people Mm -hmm. and they started using it to reintegrate them into society. Because in America, we have this kind of mess up idea where we say, okay, if we take this person, we put them in jail, we remove them from their family and their friends, we limit their job opportunities when they leave, they'll never do drugs again, right? Nope. Yeah, obviously not. If you're going to put someone in an even harsher environment than they were originally in, they're probably going to relapse. Mm-hmm. And so Portugal started integrating them back into society. So I think they had a program where if you hired a former addict, the government would pay half their wages. Oh, wow. And once these people started getting jobs because people were incentivized to hire them. Yeah, paying half. Exactly. (laughs) And so they got jobs. They made connections. They made friends. They found their family. You know, they fixed their lives. Why? Because they found that connection. They found that purpose. Without purpose, of course, your only purpose is the next time you can get high. Mm -hmm. But if you have family friends, events to go to, things to do, I think we can all agree that's a much better life. Absolutely. And it's a strange idea. Even the shows, have you ever seen, what is it called, Intervention? No. It's where everyone sits down and talks to the person about how their habits are damaging the family. yeah. That is one of the worst things you can do to an addict. Absolutely. So what you're saying is if this person doesn't change... You're going to make their life more miserable? Mm -hmm. That makes no sense. This person's already clearly miserable. Nobody who has an amazing life, who's happy where they're at, who feels good about their life, feels the desire to do heroin and meth. Yeah. Like, I can say from experience, I've never felt the need to try meth. I agree. I mean, I've also never even smoked weed, but that's just me. So what we have to do is exactly what Portugal did. You know how we talk about empathy and caring for people? Yeah. That's exactly the way to solve this problem. Give people connections. Give people purpose. Don't cast them out of society and make their lives miserable. That's only going to make the situation worse. Absolutely. These aren't bad people. And I'm sure I'm sure everyone of our listeners has noticed that we talk about empathy a lot, but it's really the main way to fix like 90% of our problems in in today's society at this point. I mean, all you have to do is listen to people and, and help them care for people. You know, everyone is human. Everyone makes mistakes. It's okay. So you have to be the person you would want for yourself if you had that problem or something like that. Yeah, if you were going through one of the worst points of your life, because I doubt people who are heroin addicts are exactly jumping up and down so happy at where they are at in life. Yeah. These people need help. These people need hope. They don't need to be shunned. What's interesting is hopelessness is a learned behavior. So, I mean, if you if you constantly find yourself in situations where there's no escape, you start to think that there will never be an escape. So it's important to help those people to find a way out 
of the hole that they're in and not just let them figure it out themselves because they, they might be feeling that where they're like, oh, I've, I've never been able to fix this before. I'll never be able to fix it. Yeah, exactly. Don't follow the American way of giving someone a criminal record, blocking them from getting a job or cutting them off from their family. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't I don't fucking get it. <laughs> it's a terrible system. We're doing the yeah. exact opposite of what we need to be doing. Mm hmm. This is why addiction is in the DSM-5. It's a mental health problem. It's not at all a criminal issue. The more that we treat it like a criminal issue, the more they're going to continue to do it. This is something that needs to be treated. Yeah, it's it's a society and a medical issue, not a criminal issue. Yeah. I don't even know. I'm getting heated. I know. It really does bother me, though. It. This is a stupid system. There's a lot of things that I don't agree with, but... I agree with none of it. It is the antithesis. It's like this idea that if someone has an addiction, they're a lesser human being because your life was good enough where you never felt the need to do drugs. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, if someone does, that makes them evil. Especially because most of these drugs, weed doesn't make you violent. It's not like... I mean, you can argue that if all you ever do is smoke weed, it kind of wastes your potential. But it's not like, what, what's the movie, Reefer Madness, where people, like, eat their parents and stab their neighbors? <laughs> no, seriously, it's insane. I haven't seen that movie. They make, it, they make it sound like if you smoke weed, you'll become a cannibal. It's crazy. Yeah. It's insane, too, because weed is actually considered a Schedule One drug. And the reason why is really just, it just goes back to Nixon and the war on drugs. But the way that they classify drugs, the schedule system works, any schedule one drug is a drug that's either dangerous and slash or highly addictive and potentially has no medical use. So it's a little crazy that marijuana is on there, but they also wait, do have. <laughs> yeah. So you're telling me the drug that is on record for never killing anybody mm -hmm. and people for years have been able mm -hmm. to get medical marijuana is yep. scheduled as a dangerous, addictive drug with no medical value. Basically. And I think, like I said, it just goes back to Nixon just kind of trying to really get rid of every single drug. Um, and obviously, another Schedule 1 would be like heroin. However, the crazy thing is, are you ready for this? Schedule 2 drugs are typically just as dangerous or slightly less dangerous, but could have some kind of med medicinal value. Do you know what a Schedule II drug is? Um, I'm going to say cocaine just because of Freud. Yes. So cocaine is considered a Schedule II, but so is meth. Who the f*** is prescribing meth? Uh, interesting fact. It's used for, uh, it used to be used for treatment in ADHD. I do, I'm not 100% sure that it's still prescribed, but it's, yeah, it's a stimulant. So you're telling me meth is lower on the list than marijuana. Exactly. That's what it, that's what I'm telling you. Well, you heard it here first. Smoke <laughs> meth before you even smoke meth. Smoke meth know. before you smoke weed. I don't, I don't I've never done math. I don't know. Uh, here's a little funny tidbit, too. You know the medication Robitussin? Oh, yeah. The cough syrup that gets everyone high if you drink like three <laughs> bottles at once. Yeah, it's a Schedule 5 drug. Oh, so. what is it? Isn't there a... I think there's like a Benadryl challenge where people are eating <laughs> yes, entire boxes that. of Benadryl to hallucinate. Yeah, um, it's a TikTok trend. Uh, but if you look it up on TikTok, you can't really find it. But it, it's a TikTok trend, apparently. Yeah, thankfully. That's that's good. <laughs> I, I don't understand. It's, it's eating Tide Pods. It's snorting condoms. 
It's eating entire boxes of Benadryl. <laughs> Where does it end? Where does it go too far? Anyways, um, that was a little, <laughs> that was a little off topic. We need to fix the problem. You're not going to describe what Schedule Two is because I cut you off. I did though. Oh. I explained it, well, okay, and then, then I said cocaine to, and meth. Go to three and. Four we don't have five. to go to three and four. I already said five. We don't need to go into three okay. and four. Like okay, Xanax fine. is a Schedule Three. Fine, I don't. Fine, fine. Don't get barred out. <laughs> Give me Adderall. I need to focus. The Schedule Three drug. God. That's one step lower than math. <laughs> just one. I'm actually not sure. It might be a schedule four, but either way. I just love the system. Like, just start phrasing it that way. Hey, that's one step lower than math, two steps lower than weed. Does that make any sense? No. Does that help me classify what drugs I'm going to use? No. Actually, I think Adderall is a schedule two. So you're telling me Adderall and meth are on the same <laughs> level. Yep. What what is happening? Who who decided this? This had to be politicians and not doctors. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. So, in conclusion, be friends with your local addict. <laughs> this actually extends to a, a lot more cuz when you picture it, we're not saying that this is simply a crisis for the person who's addicted to heroin or meth. This behavior also applies to social media to pornography, to a ton of different behaviors. Gambling. Yeah. Addiction isn't... I know we focus a lot on drugs here, but it can Mm -hmm. really be anything. Yeah. And it's almost always the same cause, though. It's a a lack of connection of purpose. Mm -hmm. It's the desire to do the one thing that makes you feel good. Yeah, absolutely. So this doesn't have to be your neighborhood crackhead. This can be your friend that seriously just can't stop playing video games. That too, yeah. It's much closer to home than a lot of people realize. So go out and be kind to people. Help people. Give them connection. It can fix most of the world's problems. Mm. I keep saying this. I know. Because it's true. It's crazy how much empathy plays into every aspect of society. You You just need to talk to people like they're people. Yeah, I I can't say it better myself. (laughs) If everyone did that, I think the vast majority of the world's problem would be solved. A hundred percent. That's all I got. That's all I got too. So if you can't get enough of Philosophical Cocktail, feel free to send us an email at mail at philosophicalcocktail.com or reach us on any social media. As always, stay legendary. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes like this one. You can visit us at philosophicalcocktail.com to read our blogs and see upcoming events and podcasts. You can also follow us on social media. If you would like to support us, click the Amazon Affiliates link on the bottom of our page or donate to us on Patreon. See you next week.